Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, I'm Chuck Eastman, and I'm the college pastor here. And uh, we're working our way through uh, the book of James. Um, Tim is, uh, is out of town. He's on vacation. Um, and don't worry if uh, you came today hoping to see Chip Ingram. He's here next week, okay? He's a little taller than me, so uh, I'm sure you'll be able to pick him out. But uh, Pastor Chip is going to be here, and uh, we're super excited standing on his shoulders here at Venture and super excited that he's gonna be bringing the word uh, next week. But this week, we're gonna dive right into James chapter four. If you have a blue Bible in front of you, you can open it up. It's on page 1,201, James four, verse one. We're gonna go all the way through uh, verse 10. James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And that's the word of the Lord. And uh, it's powerful, God's thoughts and his breath on a page. You know, I don't know if anybody in the room this morning has ever made an enemy. Anybody made an enemy before? Um, I'm sure that's something, uh, not just me, but I'm sure some of us have done that before. Uh, When I was uh, in college, um, I had a habit that would sometimes cause some conflict with me and my friends. And that habit was, is that when we would go to the cafeteria, um, I like to eat off other people's plates. Any, anybody know what I'm talking about? I grew up in a big family and, and I like to share. I mean, sharing's good, right? And uh, so I'd eat off my, people, my friends' plates. I'd drink, you know, out of their cups. And I didn't care if I, they, you know, I drank after them. I had a lot of brothers and sisters and uh, people would often just give me their drink after I drank at it out of their cup. And, uh, and I just would, you know, I would do that. And uh, my friends would get annoyed with me. But there was one morning in particular where uh, about seven o'clock in the morning, um, me and, and some of my friends went to breakfast and uh, my friend Joe was sitting next to me. And uh, Joe's a great friend. He, uh, he was a great friend then in college. He's still a good friend now, but we had to kind of get over some hurdles as you'll find out. But um, we were sitting there and here's what I do when I go eat breakfast or when I would go eat breakfast in the cafeteria is I wouldn't go, you know, you go through the cafeteria line. I wouldn't fill my plate up from the cafeteria line. I mean, I don't know what I want to eat until I see what other people are eating. So I don't know if you guys are like that. So I would go through the cafeteria line and I would get like a banana and like some cereal. And then I'd see what everybody else had, you know. And so we'd sit down 
And, uh, and so I had my cereal and my banana and I looked to my right and Joe had just this incredible plate of bacon and biscuits and gravy. Do you guys do that? We do that out here in California, biscuits and gravy. Yeah, some good old Southern breakfast. And we were sitting there, man, and, and it looked just really good, man. It smelled good. It was awesome. And not, you know, college breakfasts are not always awesome, but this one was awesome. And, uh, and I just looked over at him. And so we were just kind of hanging out and he was talking to somebody else and I just took my fork and I just took a big bite out of his biscuits and gravy. And uh, took a bite of that. And Joe looked at me, now I've been friends with Joe for a while. And Joe looked at me with a, with a different look in his eye that morning. The kind of look that said, it's seven in the morning and don't mess with me. You guys know that look? Maybe your spouse is giving you that look. Catherine gives me that look pretty much every day. I just wake up, I'm like, hey. She's like, hey, it's too early. Um, so I took a bite, Joe looked at me and he said, Chuck, don't touch my food. And, he, and I could just tell the look in his eye was like, don't, don't poke the bear this morning, Chuck. And so I, you know, for a second, I thought, you know, I don't think today's the day. You guys ever had that? You're like, I'm going to make a good decision today. And so I was like, I'm, I'm, you know, great. You're right. I don't want to get into, you know, a thing with you. And so, and uh, I just decided I'm going to make a good decision today. But about two minutes later, I forgot I made that decision. <laughs> you guys, you know what I'm talking about? You make a decision and then you've kind of forgot you made the good decision. Um, so I looked, you know, we were hanging out, we're eating and, and I looked at his plate again and and he was distracted talking to somebody else and he won't notice. And I took another bite of his biscuits and gravy and he looked at me and he said, he said, Chuck, if you touch my food again, I'm gonna stab you with my fork. <laughs> and I think he was trying to escalate through. He's like, you definitely won't do it now. And for a minute, I was like, dude, that could be really ugly and bad. And I don't want that to happen here. And, you know, this could become an altercation in the cafeteria. And, and I just thought, you know, you're, his, this, is, this is not the day to push Joe. And I made that decision. And about five minutes later, I forgot I made that decision. <laughs> and uh, so about five minutes later, I, he was eating. He actually had his fork in his mouth. And, uh, and I just thought, nah, man, I'm, I'm gonna take his last bite of biscuits and gravy. There's just one bite left. I said, 30, he won't notice. So I took his last bite of biscuits and gravy and he pulled his fork out of his mouth and then he jabbed at me with that fork. And of course I did like the matrix, you know, I'm like going backwards in my chair and he kind of swiped at me and he kind of missed. And of course everyone at the table had missed the whole thing. So everyone's like, Joe, what are you doing? And then Joe pulled back his fork and then he leaned in where I couldn't get away on the chair and then he jabbed his fork right into my forearm and it hit and then it slid right into my forearm and blood and gravy ran down my arm. <laughs> and uh, you know, me and Joe, it took us a little while to recover from that. <laughs> but uh, I bet you most of us in the room have made an enemy before. That we went back to our hometowns or maybe even here in the Bay Area, there's somebody in the business world or somebody in your family or an old friend from high school. I'm sure most of us have made an enemy before. But I bet you no one in this room thinks they're enemies with God. I bet you most of you, if you made your way into the room this morning and you're sitting in one of these chairs and you got up on Sunday, your weekend and came to church, there's a good chance that nobody in the house this morning thinks they're at war with God. That if there was a battle, God would be on one side of the line and they would be on the other. 
But that's exactly what James challenges us with this morning. Look at what he says. It's right in the middle of the passage, kind of the heartbeat of the passage. He says in verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's, that's a, if we could just take off our Christian hat for a second and just hear those words the way they land. Every one of the readers and us sitting in this room, James says to us, hey, there's a high chance you and God are at odds. That you might be an enemy of God. And maybe there might be some of us, if we were honest, we'd go, how dare he say that? Like, I'm a pretty good person. How dare James say to me, you're God's enemy. Like, I'm at church for goodness sake. You know, like I'm a good person. I, you know, I do my job really well and I take care of my family and I do my thing. And, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Isn't there a song that says that? Um, but don't, no, don't, James, don't come at me like that. Um, we might say, how, how dare he? And we have to ask ourselves, how did James get here? Well, James has been talking for a while about some, some behaviors in the church that are, that are really bothering him. And we see in verse one, chapter four, verse one, James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's his runway into looking at you and me and saying, you adulterous person, don't you know? You could be God's enemy. And here's the first thing we need to know. There's some serious conflict going on that really concerns James. And that conflict isn't conflict we can blame on anyone else. James says, this conflict with others is birthed out of our own disordered passions and desires. Our own fractured passions and desires is what's causing all this conflict in our lives and in the world around us. And it ought to blow our mind. James isn't standing on a street corner in the middle of San Jose. He's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. So if you're not a Christian this morning, you're off the hook, just kidding. But he's talking to Christians. And it, when you look at what he's saying, he's saying, you Christians, you quarrel, you fight. Why? You, you're letting these, you have these passions, these, these disordered passions are a war within you. And you lust, that's that word desire, you lust and don't have, so you murder. A lot of scholars think that Paul's being very literal there. That Christians in the first century who came, maybe they had a, okay, they came from a zealot background and maybe they were like really actually fighting and killing one another in the church. And you go, well, that's hard to believe. Well, I don't know, does anybody know your history? Anybody read the first, second, third, fifth century and the dark ages and, and all the holy wars? Man, the, the Christians have a horrible history 
of actually going to war with other Christians based on differences of maybe how we take a line or a theology. But he says, man, there's actual war. And most scholars don't think he's actually saying murder. He's actually talking about the way Jesus talked about hating your brother. And if you have hate in your heart for your brother, Jesus said in Matthew 5, it's like murder. Or maybe the apostle John said that if you hate your brother, it's the same as murder. In other words, the sin of murder comes from hate in the heart. And most scholars think that that's what James is talking about. But either way, there's a serious conflict that's coming from these desires. You go, well, what are these desires? What are these things that that are so insidious that James is like, you've got to watch out because everything going on in your life is coming from these desires. Well, if you were here last week, Pastor Tim talked about two of the desires. The first one is bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy is this desire, chapter three, verse 14. It says, if, if I had what they have, then I would be happy. Right? I'm jealous. Other people have things I want. And if I had that, if I would just be that, you know, um, I'm five foot three. I don't know if you noticed. She's not that tall. I've always been jealous of taller people. Always. You know, people like George Taddy, for example. He's tall. He's good looking. He's got a full head of hair. Did you guys notice that? Full head of hair. And you think, well, maybe he doesn't have a good beard. No, he's got a good beard too. You can watch the whole thing. He's got the whole package. And, 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 and jealousy can fill your heart. It can. You know, on a more serious note, I didn't get married till I was 38. I think I've told you guys that. And all my friends, I was a groomsman 13 times in the first two years after college. And all my friends married awesome Christian girls and built awesome Christian families. And God made me wait for a long time for an amazing girl, praise God. But I can tell you for a decade, I battled with jealousy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Other people have what you don't have. And jealousy, bitter jealousy fills your heart. And, and causes some broken things to come out in your relationships with other people. You got bitter jealousy. Uh, back in chapter three, Tim pointed out selfish ambition. And the lie that drives that is what? If I, if I outperform the others, I will be noticed and praised and, and that'll make me feel valuable. Anybody bought this lie? Maybe your family put, you know, I know I think here in the Bay Area, there's a lot of pressure on performance. And so maybe you grew up and you go, man, there's this, all this pressure. And if I just, if I do reach high enough, then I'll be noticed and praised and, and I'll have earned my value in the world. I think this lie drives a lot of us in our lives and in our relationships. And here in chapter four, James adds two more passions uh, to his list here. He talks about lust, verse two. You desire and do not have. That's lust, that, that word for desire. And it's not just like, in a, sometimes we use lust like a, in, mostly in a sexual context. In this, desire, in this context, it's broader than that. It's a, if I can just get the amazing experiences I long for, I will be fulfilled. And, and by the way, this is presented to us constantly through social media, right? Everybody living their best life now, curated on the internet and through Instagram, posting. I'm like, what do they just, do they like do their job like up on the ski slopes? Like they're just curating this whole life of how they're living their best life. And there's all these experiences and, and you're really missing out. And, and that, there's a lust for saying, if I could just get my hands on those experiences. I think it's ironic 
that the description, the, the word for a person who just travels and travels, it goes from experience to experience to experience and, and can't really settle down is what? It's the word wanderlust. Just a lust for new experiences. And our culture is like, yes, throw it all to the wind. There's tons of movies you can watch about how families and marriages and all these things are, are destroyed because you have to have that experience. That's what, that'll, that'll fulfill you. And then there's covetousness. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. If I could just have him or her or that thing, that will complete me. These are the lies and these are the disordered passions that really concern James. And here's, here's what he's gonna point out. When these desires control you and grip our heart, they actually make it incredibly difficult. These insecurities and these raging passions, they make it almost virtually impossible to authentically approach or connect with God. Look at what he says. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, God is not the person you're going to to say, fill me up. So he's not filling you up. He's like, you have the God of the universe, but you don't ask him. You keep pursuing your passions. But even when you do ask him, you don't even want him. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jesus is, he's just, if you do go to him, you're so blinded by what you think you have to have to be complete that even when you go to him, it's like, well, God, like, I, yeah, I'm talking to you. Can you please get, make sure I get this? I gotta have this. You're, God, you're there, right? You're, you're not gonna leave me like this. You're not gonna, you're gonna make that happen. You're gonna give me that promotion. You're gonna make sure that girl likes me. You're gonna make sure this doesn't keep going on like this. And we're so blinded by our real gods. That's, see, that's James' real issue here. We're so blinded by our real functional God that we think will fulfill us that even when we talk to God, it's just, we've just made him another way to get our real God. And this is where James kind of loses his cool. And he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The nature of this idolatry is a friendly alliance with the world. That's the nature of it. The nature of this adultery, this um, idolatry is this friendly alliance with the world. And by the way, just to back up for a second, um, you might be like, hey, skip something on the slides. I sure did. If you back up, idolatry, idolatry is the core problem to James and adultery is the main image that Old Testament prophets used to highlight idolatry. So if you go back and read the Old Testament, which would be awesome, if you go and read that, you're gonna see over and over and over again, God saying to his people and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, he's gonna say again and again, you are my people. You were not a people, but I brought you in to be my family. I'm your God, you're my people. And then it said, then they pursued other gods. This is, the pro this is the consistent problem with the people of God. And we're not even talking about people who aren't sure what they think about Jesus. This is people who say, I'm in the Jesus camp. Consistently saying, you're my God, but I want another God. I want something 
else. And this idolatry, the core of it is this friendly alliance with the world. Look at what it says in four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Makes himself an enemy of friendship with the world and makes himself an enemy with God. Well, what is friendship with the world? We gotta get at that a little bit. If you grew up in church, you immediately run to what you've heard your whole life and what I heard my whole life. What does it mean to be friends with the world? Well, you know, that's having bad friends. That's what my parents told me. You know, don't, you know, we gotta make sure you don't have the wrong kind of friends. Don't smoke or drink or talk to the girls that do. That's the world. Don't be friends with the world. And, And what this resulted in a lot of times was kind of an isolation from culture Sometimes we tend, to, we tend to go, man, this culture, this big, bad culture, it's saying all this stuff. So we're gonna, we're gonna isolate. We're gonna build ourselves a kind of a Christian subculture. We're gonna, we're gonna be the Alamo because there's the world. And God said, don't be friends with the world. And so I'm not gonna be friends. And what we mean is we're not gonna be friends with anybody who doesn't follow Jesus. We're not gonna go to places where other people who don't follow Jesus are at. And so we're gonna build our little Alamo. You know, we're gonna put the walls up. We're gonna hole up, hang on until Jesus comes back and rescues us. And that's how a lot of us have interpreted this phrase, don't be friends with the world. Um, by the way, just so you know, uh, the Alamo didn't make it. I don't know if anybody knows that. That strategy doesn't work. And it's actually not what James is talking about. And we know that that's not what he's saying. He's not saying not to engage the culture. He's not saying to not be friends with people who don't know Jesus. He's not saying that at all. What he's, we know that because John three sixteen for for God so loved the world. And you go, well, you can love the world, but not be friends with the world. Anybody heard that? I've heard that my whole life. Well, Jesus loved the world. So love the world, but don't be friends. Except in Luke 7, Jesus comes along and it says he was eating and drinking. And the criticism of him was, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So James can't be saying that his core problem is that this Christian group of believers has somehow gotten way too like close and friendly and just got these great friendships with people who aren't Christians. That's not what James is talking about. What James is talking about is that this group of Christians, and I think this is something we've all struggled with, is they've bought into the same lies the culture has bought into for ultimate satisfaction. And by the way, do you know that we can buy into the same lies of thinking power, success, and pleasure. We can buy into the same lies that that's what we need to be fulfilled and isolate ourselves from people who aren't Christians. You know, we can do that. James is saying, you've bought into the same idols that the world always goes after. It's not that you've just been friends with them, but you've bought into the same lies for what provides ultimate joy and hope and significance and worth. And here's what James wants to say so loudly for us. God is jealous to be the ultimate object of our desires. God is jealous to be the ultimate source of all of our joy and all of our hope and all of our significance and all of our sense of self-worth. God is jealous to be the end of the road for where we get our sense of who we are and why we exist on planet earth. And he wants to obliterate anything else you could grab onto to say, well, that's what'll make me happy. Because he knows that that's an end 
that he knows it's a, it, it's a dead end. And he knows that when you pursue it, it causes brokenness everywhere around you. And so you see what he says in verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. You know, a lot of scholars debate what scripture James is quoting here. And there's a whole bunch of scriptures in the Old Testament about how God is jealous to be the one true object of worship for his people that he's gathered together. But I, I think it's a reference all the way back to Exodus 20. If you look, go know back to Exodus, you'll notice that God took his people, the Israel nation, he took them out of slavery. He made them a people. He took them into the desert, took them to Mount Sinai, and then he gave them the law. And this law was to be the thing that would hold them together, the thing that would govern the way they would worship the one true God. And the very first commandment in the 10 commandments, you see it right here. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The sovereign God of the universe is jealous that we don't put our confidence in false idols. You go, well, well how do I know what a, what a false idol is? I love what Tim Keller says, idols control us and we know that they're idols because we feel like we must have them. And if we don't, life is meaningless. Maybe you just need to take an assessment right now. What, what thing in your life, what person, what thing, what situation, do you have to have things go a certain way? And if it doesn't, life is meaningless for you. That could, that could be anything that you've elevated to. That's what makes me whole. It could be your marriage. It could be your kids. It could be your job. It could be your wealth. It could be anything you make ultimate in your life. And we've got to watch out. James calls us to challenge what we value as those who live under the Lordship of Jesus. And, and maybe, maybe it may be intimidating for you and I to realize that we've got this awesome big creator God who is jealous that all of our affection and all of our worship and all of our sense of significance is aimed and directed at him as the object that can satisfy us. Maybe that's an intimidating thought. And maybe you look at your life and you go, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm entangled in some things. I'm struggling with some things. I'm battling with some things. I have so many flawed or, or, or mixed emotions in my heart. Even as I come to Jesus, I'm just like the guy James is talking about. I, I come to Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, I want you, but I want this. I want you, but can you make this happen? Please God come through for me. But would you also make sure this happens? And I also love you and that'll be enough. If I just get you, that's enough. But could you, when I get you, can you make sure? Anybody pray like this? I'm sorry, I, just ranting a little bit here. And I'm like, man, I'm, that's me. I've got these flawed mixed emotions as I'm trying to press in to God. And it's easy after failing again and again and again and again to throw up our hands and just accept that, that my heart's divided. Anybody do that? I'm just, I'm just gonna accept it. My heart's divided. 
you know, there's worse things you could want. That's what I want, you know, God and that. I got it. Yep. This is just where I'm at. This is just what I'm going to be. If that's you this morning, I just want you to know God wants you home. And he's provided a way back. And the most beautiful phrase in this chapter, and maybe the most beautiful phrase in the whole Bible is verse six, but he gives more grace. If greed has gripped your heart, he gives more grace. If substance abuse has gripped your life and destroyed your relationships, he gives more grace. If you're addicted to pornography, he gives more grace. If you're legalistic, he gives more grace, praise God. If you have failed relationships, if your marriage has gone down the tubes, he gives more grace. He loves you and he has made a way for those of us that have given our hearts to things that are not God. He gives more grace. And the question is, how do we access that grace? How do we move into this bucket of mercy that God provides for those of us who have made ourselves an enemy with God because of the way we've put our hope and significance in things that are not God? How do we access his grace? And I love what the rest of verse six says. It says, therefore God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To receive the grace that God has for us freely, the first thing every one of us has to do is address our pride. There is one sin that will repel grace again and again and again. And it's not sexual sin and it's not an addiction and it's not a divorce and it's not whatever you could think of. There's one sin that will repel grace again and again. It's the sin under all the sins, which is pride. I don't need God. He's the sovereign Lord, but I don't, I can do what I want. I'm not really that broken. I'm not really that big of a mess. I don't really have those kinds of problems. These things really aren't my fault. Pride will repel grace again and again and again. And you guys say, well, how do, I, how do I know that that's going on? You know, well, for me, it's, am I defensive? I know, especially when people love me, put their finger on something in my life and my first reaction is being defensive. I know pride is, is underneath the surface, just rearing its head. Do you, do you, are you critical? Do you find yourself to be a mocker of, of other people? Maybe other people that are maybe letting go and moving toward Christ in ways that make you feel guilty, so you mock? Pride will consistently get in the way of grace. It's deadly because its bottom line is a refusal to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. That's the bottom line of your pride. The bottom line of pride is a refusal to submit. Grace is free and it's available and it has one requirement and you see it right there in verse seven. Submit yourself therefore to God. Grace is available to any broken person in the room except for the person who says, I still wanna be king. If you still wanna be king, you're not gonna even ask for the grace Jesus has for you. 
But if you're willing to take off the crown you think you wear and lay your life down in submission to the creator of the universe, grace is available for you and for me. He says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Oh, we're so, we're so shy, we're so afraid to say that. But you and I, we are sinners. We are broken rebels against God. And there's one way forward to find grace is to see what we have been and what we struggle with. If we don't see that, if we wanna hang on to, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. We're never gonna ask for the grace we need. Draw near to God. There's submit, draw near and cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Doug uh, Moo, a commentator on this says that the hands and the heart was kind of an Old Testament way of saying, this is what I do. This is, this is my actions. And this is the posture, the disposition of my heart. Cleanse your hands. Here's my stuff, God. Here's the stuff. Here's the broken ways I've interacted in the world around me. And here's my heart. Here's the broken darkness in my heart. These are the broken passions that have wrecked everything in my life. Here they are. Bring them and submit them. And then he says, look at verse nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's he saying? He's saying that as you bring your hands in the brokenness that you've done and you bring your heart and the posture of your heart is to say, here it is, God, I'm laying it down. I'm submitting to you. You're the Lord of my life. These passions that have wrecked me and that have driven me, these things that controlled me, you're the only one who can free me. Here they are. James says, that action is marked by sorrow. In other words, until you are grieved over how much sin has wrecked you and everybody around you, until you're grieved by the way your selfishness has hurt your closest relationships, until you're, gr you're, you're grieved by the way your greed has wrecked the relationship you have with your children, until you're grieved by the way sin has owned your heart, until you shed tears of saying, God, I can't believe this is, I'm not a basically good person. This is broken. I'm a rebel. Until there's grief, there's really no room in your heart to ask for God's grace. True repentance is marked by sorrow and sorrow is the breaking down of your pride. True repentance is marked by sorrow and sorrow is the breaking down of our pride. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He wrote a really, really tough letter to the church in Corinth, challenging lots of their relationships and debauchery and just a whole bunch of stuff that they were doing and going through. And I love what he says. He says, I'm not sorry that the things I said to you caused grief. He says, because for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You wanna have regret? Defend yourself. Make excuses for yourself. Protect yourself. But if you wanna experience freedom, godly grief produces repentance. And that leads to salvation without regret. So then James takes us to the end of the passage here. 
And he says in verse 10, therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, when, when you see that phrase, that's the core of it, humbling yourself, submitting yourself before the Lord. When you look at that, you ought to hear echoes of Jesus. Because see, here's the thing. Jesus always models and by his spirit empowers what he commands of us. Jesus has not left you and me to go out there and, and figure out how to do this thing on our own. We're constantly gonna be gripped by the temptation of idols from our own heart and from the world. Everything Jesus commands of us, everything James says that we need to move in and toward, Jesus has modeled and by his spirit, he empowers. I want you to see this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 5 says this, that you and I should have the mind among yourselves, which is yours, which belongs to you in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So look at that. Jesus, who is God, didn't pursue selfish ambition. That's an amazing thing. The one who had the right to pursue his ambition and to grab equality and to exert himself over you and I didn't do it. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the humbling. Jesus did. Jesus calls you and I to come humble ourselves. He humbled himself. The, the one who didn't have to do it, did it. You and I say, man, I'm struggling to do it. I can't do it. Jesus did what you and I couldn't do. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And then Paul kind of loses his mind. Therefore, God has highly, what, exalted him. How do you know that when you humble and submit yourself that it's for your good? How do you know that, that God's ultimate purpose in saying, make me the source of all your joy and hope and self-worth, how do we know that's for our good? Because look what God did with Jesus. He exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Jesus did what he asked us to do so that all of us get to the end of history in this place right here where the risen king comes in on a white horse and we find ourselves on our knee in front of the one who gives us life to the fullest. And Jesus is jealous that you and I don't try to find life in broken places. That's his jealousy, that's his passion that he's the God that gives all that we were made for. And he's jealous that his children don't seek fulfillment in places that can't give it. But instead find ourselves at this place on this day with Jesus in front of us and our knees on the ground and his name on our tongue for his glory and our eternal good. That's the beauty of what James is calling us to here. So we're gonna to move to the table. These elements represent 
the humility of Jesus and making it possible for you and I, making it possible for James to say, but he gives more grace. This table, these elements, the body and the blood of Jesus is why James can say, you're broken. You may even be God's enemy, but he gives more grace. How do we get that grace? Through his body and his blood. So this bread, this bread is the humbling of Jesus to the point of being brutally beaten and crucified, lifted up on a cross and dying a death you and I could not die. And he did it for us. So let's take the elements. And this cup represents his blood. Paul says in Corinthians that he who did not know sin became sin. In other words, sin was put on him so that in him, we'd become his righteousness. And the blood of Jesus is our righteousness. The blood of Jesus is why we can look at one another still working out some of these disordered, broken passions and desires in our heart. And we can still say, but I have received grace and I stand in the blood of Jesus. And when the father looks at me, he doesn't see broken Chuck Eastman. He sees the blood of Jesus. And so we take the cup knowing that our confidence is in his blood. Jesus, we, we pray right now that if there's any quiet pride in our hearts, I pray right now your spirit would just bring a breaking there. And if there's anybody in the room right now who would desperately love to be free, would love to be free and they would love to experience the overwhelming grace you've made available through the cross. If there's anybody in the room this morning that needs that and wants that and you wanna put your faith in Jesus, I, I wanna know, maybe, maybe you'd stand up this morning and you say, man, that's what I want. I want grace. I want God's mercy. And if that's you, maybe you just be bold right now and you just, wherever you are, you'd say, man, I wanna, I wanna follow Jesus. I want to put my confidence. I, I, I've been broken. I've been struggling. I've been battling, but I want to stand in the grace of Jesus through the cross. If that's you, just stand up. And confess with your mouth in your heart, Jesus, here I am. My hands and my heart, my deeds and the posture of my heart. I want to submit to you. And I want you to be Lord. Would you forgive me? Would you draw me close? Would you remind me of who I am and what I was made for? God, would you make that a reality for every heart in the room? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.